I'm Gabriel Spitzer, and this is Transmission. I don't know about you all, but I've been kind of fixated on these models. Computer models, that is. The the ones that project how many new COVID cases we can expect or when the economy might start to rebound. I, I don't know, maybe it's because we're living in such uncertainty that I'm just grasping at any inkling of what the near future holds. But those models, they can't tell us how we're going to feel, how lockdown and grief and and social breakdown will change the way that we see and experience the world. Well, it turns out there is a model for that, too. Dr. Kyra Mouseth is a clinical psychologist and instructor at Seattle University, and she runs a mathematical model that forecasts our mental health. And we can give you some pretty confident ideas about people's behavioral health responses that are likely to occur in the next six to nine months based on known sort of patterns of disaster cycles and response. Using data from previous events like 9-11 or SARS, we can make a prediction of how many of us will have behavioral health symptoms afterward, even months down the line. When you plug it all into the model, the numbers for Washington state are sobering. We are anticipating that between two to three million Washingtonians are going to be um, adversely affected from a behavioral health perspective by this pandemic. Millions of us are facing a long, slow recovery, not just from the disease and, and not just from the economy, but from the ripple effects that can cripple our sense of well-being, our moods, our ability to see the light at the end. We're going to hear more about that model a little later on in the episode, and we'll dig into how the pandemic and now the social unrest around racism and police violence are impacting our mental health. The past few months have been hard, really hard. Dr. Michael Kane knows that very well. Five days a week, 10 hours a day, he's on video calls talking to people about what they're going through. He's a clinical traumatologist, though he's been called a few other names. The Grief Man. I listen to a lot of grief. Prince of Darkness. And that one, I, I don't get the Prince of Darkness pit. Kane likes to phrase it a little differently. I walk with the wounded. Most of Kane's patients have experienced trauma, and many of them are African American. The two are deeply linked. In a racist society, African Americans shoulder stress just moving through life. And Kane says there are many different types of trauma that affect his clients. All these traumas have names, 14 of them, but Kane highlighted only one called just world trauma. Just world trauma asserts that people have a need to believe in a just world one in which they get what they deserve and deserve what they get. The just world theory corresponds to the principle of goodness and that the goodness of an individual is a primary factor determining his or her lot in life. All this forms the backdrop for Michael Caine's daily conversations with patients. At this very fraught moment in America, we checked in with him to hear how he's supporting his clients in their mental health, and how he's holding up himself. We are not in this together. That's the message that I'm receiving from Black America. No, we are not in this together. Uh, white America has been practicing distancing from African Americans for 400 years. For 400 years, we have been oppressed. For 400 years, we have been targeted. One way or another, we've been held down by Black codes, segregation laws, and we are entitled to be angry. 
But then again, we're told that if you're angry, oh, that's an angry black man. You know, oh, we got to stay away from that guy. You know, and so we, we minimize, we seek to minimize our anger. And it's like a, we have, instead of having a explosions per se to protect the white person from that anger, we have an implosion. The implosion that leads to strokes, heart attacks, high blood pressure, um, high rate of alcoholism, drug abuse, domestic violence, all these other things that happen because I stuff it in. And so what I'm looking at is for, to, is for people to understand that we have a right to that anger. Okay. So what I want to do in working with my patients is to let them know that, and this is what I want white America to understand, that anger is nothing more than an emotion. We don't want to push it away. We don't want to hold on to it. We want to express it appropriately. We want to embrace our anger. And then as we embrace it, we want to be able to let it go. I've had patients say to me, you don't know what I've gone through. You're a doctor. And I'm saying to myself, no, you don't know what I've gone through. And I am a doctor. You know, I'm a child of segregation. I went to all colored school, not an all black school, an all colored school in Virginia. Okay, I integrated, forced integration of a white school system where no one spoke to me for two years. I know the pain. But of course, I'm not going to sit there and, and shout all that out to my patient. You know, I am going to hold my stuff and to listen, to listen, not to just hear, but to listen to this pain. And as I'm listening, the patient gets the understanding, this guy does get me. He does understand me. But no, I've heard, I've been listening to a lot of pain and suffering over the last um, three months. You know, it's just been, it's been horrific for me, horrific. Um, and I want to thank my patients uh, as I've been uh, working through video, video uh, taping or video chatting. Um, I've had patients say to me, Dr. King, you don't look good. Are you okay? You know, you don't sound good. You don't look good. And I'm just saying, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. He said, no, you don't look good. You know, and so I saw what I was doing. I saw that I was putting on a front to protect them, that I wasn't taking care of the self. As a self-psychologist, I felt like a hypocrite because the whole thing is about taking care of the self. And I was not demonstrating that behavior. And so I immediately... Uh, uh, took five days off. My hope would be that my colleagues would make themselves available to listen to the anguish and listen to the pain and simply just hold space. If you can do no more than just hold space, hold space. Hold space for that 45 to 50 minutes. Allow the person to know that they're being validated, that they're, they are valued. We understand that a person who is a white uh, clinician may not have the same experiences and awareness as an African-American or another person of color. Don't just 
transfer the case, have the willingness to stay with it and seek consultation as you continue to work with that person. When you transfer the case, you may be overloading the limited resource that we have already. Seek consultation so that we can assist you in getting the wants and the needs of the population and yourself met. The question I get, Dr. King, when will this be over? When will they accept us? When will they stop hunting us? When will they start being a target? I'm listening to the anguish, you know, and I, I'm not able to give them that answer they're looking for. So what I give them the answer is vigilance, safety, comfort. That's all I can do. We know how to survive. We survive quite well. That's part of the problem, surviving. There are the five levels, existing, surviving, driving. What we want is to be able to drive, to be empowered. We want to be able to strive, to set the pace, to live the lives we want to live. And then finally, we want to be able to thrive, thrive. What we want is transformation. Change takes us, we have changed. Oh yeah, we changed all right. Okay, but we have not transformed. Change takes us forward and takes us back. Here we go, back and forth with change. Transformation, there's no going back. We're going forward. KNKX's Posey Gruner produced that story. Earlier on, we met Dr. Kyra Mouseth, who runs that model of how current events will affect our mental health based on past events. But no two disasters are exactly the same. And we don't know yet how the COVID-19 pandemic and all the other stuff that's happening right now will play out. Here's KNKX's Kevin Kniestad with more. Kira Mouseth says the pandemic has things in common with other big crises, but it affects our behavioral health in some unique ways, too. Um, what we've found and, and been tracking kind of in Washington in the last month or so is that um, the anxiety has actually been a little bit less than we would typically see. And we're starting to see um, more significant indicators of depression that are, that are coming out. Mouseth says that the higher rate of depression is largely due to the social isolation and lack of connection that has come with this pandemic. Different results than you would see from, say, an earthquake. But based on patterns from the past, there are still some knowns. And what is typical in situations like this is for people to respond in phases. Mouseth referred to the beginning of May as just sort of getting past the honeymoon phase. So what we can reasonably expect is that um, rates of depression are going to increase over the next three to six, three to six months. And we can, um, with a high degree of certainty, uh, recognize that heading into the fall, it's going to be really important to prepare for um, higher rates of depression um, and really be looking out for one another. Um, it, the risk of suicide goes up. Um, that's related to economic concerns as well as um, things like the weather around here. You have the holidays approaching and whatnot. Um, and sort of all of those things with the cycle of disaster response where we'll be um, down in the disillusionment stage is when people start to accept the fact that it's not going to go back to the way it was. 
there will be a new normal and it's going to be all right, but it's not going to be the same as it was. And that's a that's a difficult sort of um, place of acceptance for people to to go through. And for us in Washington State, that's going to coincide with right around October and November. If that doesn't seem like a gloomy enough forecast, Mouseth says there are expectations of people, quote, acting out over the summer. This might include aggression, violence, substance abuse, illegal behavior versus acting in voluntary isolation and not being a participant. And her projections don't account for the recent mayhem that has come with some of these protests. So what do we make of all of this? How do we keep from becoming overwhelmed? Mouseth says to start, realize that it's normal. Those are very, very normal responses to a highly abnormal situation. Um, so people are struggling right now. Yeah, everybody's struggling right now. And that's okay. Um, and we can help each other. And resilience is more powerful than the struggle itself. Resilience is a word Mouseth uses a lot when it comes to how to combat some of these ailments. The majority of the time, human beings come through any, any scope of disaster with a um, experience of resilience. And it is something that can be learned. It's something that can be developed with practice and time. And um, speaking as a clinician, uh, we really want to emphasize that you know all people have the opportunity to sort of focus in on how to develop their own resilience by um, emphasizing the three aspects that make it up, which are um, connection to other people and having a purpose, as well as being flexible and adaptive. And particularly with COVID-19, the necessity of being flexible and adaptive um, is really important, figuring, figuring out a way to maintain connection with other folks um, and really um, emphasize being you know creative and flexible in how we maintain connections and how we have motivations and what we are motivated by. It just it ha- takes on a different meaning right now. So that, the emphasis on resilience is, is a really important thing um, and that a lot of folks, most folks, in fact, are going to come out of this um, experience with you know, different levels of resilience, but that is definitely something that we can emphasize in terms of sort of a call to action. That was from KNKX's Kevin Kinestead, and Kevin's on the line with me right now. Uh, jumping off from that last point, we were talking about, you know, being creative and ways to build resilience by, by connecting with other people as a way to take care of our mental health. And I was just wondering, for the most part, it's just been you and your cat in a one-bedroom apartment so far. <laughs> um, how's it been working out for you, Kevin? Yeah, it has just been me and the kitten. We've both been climbing the walls a little bit, her literally climbing the walls and <laughs> me figuratively climbing the walls, but otherwise hanging in there. And how have you tried to like stay connected to people and not feel you know, completely isolated? Well, um, I, I took some advice, actually. Uh, I was listening in on a teleconference with a psychiatrist, who was saying that being socially distant doesn't mean you have to be antisocial. The psychiatrist went on to say that it's actually a great time to reach out to people that you haven't reached out to in a long time and reconnect. And so I took that to heart and I decided I was going to take that a step further. I was going to reach out to some people that I hadn't talked to in a while, but I was also going to record those conversations and, um, and make a podcast out of it. Uh, explain what you mean. This is a podcast about reconnecting with, with people that you've kind of lost touch with? Yeah, so uh, in almost every single case, it's someone that I haven't seen in at least a year. And, you know, I wasn't really sure how it was going to turn out. You know, I kind of hang, had this anxiety about <laughs> just hanging out with people in general. You know, that awkward, I haven't seen you in a while thing. And 
Um, you know, there's always ways to get out of it or avoid it. But, you know, it turns out that, you know, it's never really that bad in case it's usually quite enjoyable. And it was the same situation here. So how did you decide who you're going to talk to? I started to think about, okay, so if this is going to be a podcast, then it can't just be, you know, just anybody. It has to be someone who can tell a story. It's not just for my own entertainment. It's for listeners' entertainment, too. And so I decided and landed on a guy that you and I both know who always has a story to tell, and that is uh, our old intern from our show Sound Effect, Warren. Yeah, Warren Langford, who's done a lot of uh, really memorable stories for um, for our show Sound Effect. And how did that go when, when you checked in with Warren? What was that like? <laughs> Warren's a really funny guy. So I learned a little bit about what things are like in Santa Fe where he moved to. Ravens are everywhere here. People need to associate Santa Fe with ravens more so than like the coyotes wearing bandanas. <laughs> 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 you know, and he also talked a little bit about how people are really truly representing themselves on social media during this time. I wonder if people are kind of changing their attitudes of, of how they're using Facebook and social media and Instagram. And it's it's not so much about bragging. It's just more about like living like you're unable to see me and I want to actually present an honest image of myself. Yeah, it's a really interesting point that he makes because, um, you know, we don't have much to go on in terms of understanding how our friends and, and loved ones are doing right now besides social media. So, um, you know, if the extent to which that represents real life uh, makes a really big difference right now in a way that it doesn't when we're out seeing people face to face. Yeah, I mean, literally, with the exception of the grocery store, really, all of our interactions are, you know, electronic. Yeah, yeah. All right, so um, that was Warren. That was your first one. Who, who else did you talk to? Okay, the second one, I wanted to talk to uh, a young woman who I went out on one single date with her. Uh, I haven't seen her in at least seven years, and I thought if there was going to be one that was going to be awkward, it would be this one. Uh, but but it, it actually, it wasn't awkward at all. We talked about our single date and how what we did would be actually a really great idea during times like these. We went to the drive-in. I was thinking about that because, um, well, for a couple reasons. Number one, because right now there's so many things that we can't go out and do that I feel like the drive-in is something that someone should get up and running again. It's like you can go to a movie, but you don't have to come in contact with anybody. I legitimately was thinking the exact same thing. And the only drive-in I've ever been to is with you and so that ever in your entire came... life yeah well we never did go on like a a, a second date i don't think so I don't think but so. i don't remember it not being fun it seems to me that it's there's a little bit of comfort in a time of isolation when you when you go back to something like that you figure like a false start at a dating situation that that kind of doesn't amount to anything like it adds up to nothing right like well it didn't work out but really you still have a connection to that person and i think that that's what you kind of reinforce when you when you when you check back in with them in a, in a difficult time i think that's kind of encouraging yeah yeah so okay whitney who else any other ex-girlfriends or or did you go other routes <laughs> no other ex-girlfriends but there was a, another one was my friend alex who kind of taught me I, i've moonlighted as a bartender over the years and he kind of taught me how to bartend and we have no good reason 
to not be hanging out on a regular basis. We got along so well. We were really, really good friends when I lived down in Tacoma. So he's kind of the what's our excuse friend that I wanted to catch up with. You know, there was this kind of mental block that driving from Tacoma to Seattle to see a friend is just too far, even though it's not that far. So my favorite part of the conversation with Alex was hearing that that isn't an issue for him anymore. I'll drive 40 minutes to have dinner with a friend and then drive 40 minutes back like it's no thing. I mean, maybe we could just agree that this isn't going to be the, this conversation that we're having right now. It's not the substitute for us to actually make a 30 to 45 minute drive and let's have a meal. Let's break some bread. Let's reminisce. I'll plan my relapse around it. Maybe I'll find a job that we can work together and I can stiff you on your tips. I'll be like, oh, maybe not. There's no tips tonight. Sorry, Kevin. It was slow. I need this $400. Jeez. I'm glad to hear Alex's uh, sense of humor is undaunted by pandemic. <laughs> I don't think anything could do away with his sense of humor. It was probably my favorite conversation. We probably talked for... I don't know, 45 minutes, and it ended up cutting down to nine minutes in the final version because too many inside jokes, it's so, all in the edit. Yes. It's all in the We'll fix it in post. All right, so <laughs> so we've got an old coworker, an old dating prospect, and an old friend. Who else? Well, uh, another friend, but the first parent that I talked to, uh, and her name is Ashton. She has a nine-year-old and an 18-month-old. And I have zero children, so the idea of having a child at all um, is is terrifying to me. So I wanted to talk to her about her kids and and what being a parent was like during this um, with the kids so far apart in age, which we did. But then she actually shared something that was really, really special that I did not see coming. I can't tell you how hard 2007, 2008 especially was for me. Um, I made a lot of mistakes, and I just want to thank you for for always being there, no matter what, and for never passing judgment, and in fact, um, quite the opposite, um, telling me that I was being too hard on myself, because I don't think you realize what an impact that you have made on my life. Wow, that's um, that's pretty powerful, Kevin. That was something you didn't know about. No, I didn't see that coming. You know, it was we were closer when we worked together back then, and you know, I remember her having a rough time. I didn't realize that, you know, I was uh, that much of a support for her, and um, and it really meant a lot to hear that. Man, um, that feels like it's like exactly what you were kind of after with this project in some ways, because. Like moving through the world, you know, we, we, we're not just our own experience. We're how we reflect off of other people. And you don't get to see that when you're stuck in your house. But by reaching out and making these connections, you can, you can kind of get that feedback again to remind you that, you know, like you're, you matter to people. Yeah. And, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't looking for compliments or pats on the back or for people to tell me, oh, it's okay that we haven't talked especially after doing the first couple, it was nice to hear that, you know, everybody else was kind of looking to talk to someone too. It's not just me. There is that some sort of satisfaction that, you know, no matter how long it's been, we're still good. So what have been some of your, your favorite parts or most memorable parts from this project so far, Kevin? 
Uh, there were two things that kind of stood out to me. One is that, again, I mentioned earlier that I kind of dread catching up with people in person that I haven't seen in a while. I just don't know if we're going to have anything to talk about. A conversation is going to be forced. And it was not the case in any of these situations. And everybody, you know, is looking for someone to talk to right now. Everybody is looking to catch up. Everybody is, you know, dying to, you know, to have it the way it was before. But we're all in the same boat. And then the other thing that I did that I got a lot out of was that the last question I asked everyone when I talked to them was who they would reach out to if that they hadn't seen in a year or talked to in a year. And for each one of them, I felt like they really put thought into that. And most of them said that they were actually going to go do it right when they got off the phone with me. You know, maybe there's another connection that I'm not aware of out there or a reconnection that I'm not aware of out there that came out of a conversation I got to have with a person. It's really interesting talking about how the conversations didn't feel forced, how they felt pretty natural, because, um, I mean, I hope you don't mind me saying this. One thing I think that you and I have in common, Kevin, is that we're, neither of us particularly love talking on the phone. Um, Correct. It's not my, like, uh, wheelhouse in terms of social life, and I always have a little bit of weird anxiety when I'm calling somebody that I haven't talked to in a little while. I, I don't know. I think all that stuff is probably constructed in my head. Mm-hmm. But during the pandemic, I've I've you know, I've done some of what you're talking about, too. I've I've reached out to friends that I haven't talked to in a long time and I don't know why. And um, it's been positive every time. It's never been it's never been an, like a, a big effort. Every time I'm like, why didn't I do that two months ago, six months ago, two years ago, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like it was good for your for your mental health? I think it was good for my mental health, both short-term and long-term, because, you know, the positive part of it short-term was that I got to catch up and learn what was going on in the lives of people that I cared about or uh, haven't, and haven't seen in a long time. And then the long-term is I'm not so anxious about it anymore. Like, I, I, I really truly believe that it'll be easier for me to reach out to people, whether we can see them in person or not. And, and you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't quite have that same anxiety about, you know, catching up for coffee or answering a phone call from someone I haven't heard from in a while that I did two months ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you, man. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, you know, I hope, I hope I can kind of carry that lesson out of quarantine. We'll see. Well, if you do need someone else to talk to, uh, do do reach out to our old intern Warren because I, I got at least three story ideas out of his <laughs> conversation with him. That guy's a machine. Yeah, yeah, he is. <laughs> well, uh, KNKX's Kevin Kniestead, thanks, man. Thanks for creating uh, the podcast, catching up in quarantine, uh, and for sharing some of the highlights with us, man. It was truly my pleasure. Kevin's podcast is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as is Transmission. Please go ahead and subscribe if you haven't done so already, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can also send feedback to outreach at knkx.org. Transmission is produced by the staff of KNKX, including Kevin Kniestead, Posey Gruner, Jennifer Wing. We get help from Kari Plogue, and our executive producer is Florangela Davila. I'm Gabriel Spitzer. I'll catch you next time on Transmission.